Everybody was Lucas and Zach podcasting. Those cats were fast as lightning. In fact, it was a little bit frightening. But they were fought with expert podcasting. <laughs> it was definitely a little bit frightening, um, which is also the subtitle to this entire podcast. Um, welcome back to another episode in the 2020 Movies Month. We are talking Small Axe, which is the cinematic achievement of the year. And we have a special guest with us, a returning guest, one of our favorites, Mr. Chancellors. Hello, happy to be back. Zach is here. Zach is, um, Zach, I would say, what is this, 85% Zach? We're saying 75% Zach. Oh, my God. 35 percent Zach. <laughs> and crying like he's 85. Zach, you know, toughing it out, not feeling great. But we're talking small acts. First, last letterbox movie, Zach Ford, last letterbox movie. Of course I forgot what I was gonna say. Oh um <laughs> coming um number two, coming twelve America. This is a podcast for it, and putting up number two is not going to sell the title. Let me America. Um, I'm, a, I'm a pretty solid fan of the original Coming to America. Um, there's a lot of Eddie Murphy classics I haven't seen, so to say it's my favorite is not fair. Like, I haven't seen Trading Places. Um, so, that is, so I can't make that comparison, but it is definitely one of my favorite Eddie Murphy, or it's my favorite Eddie Murphy movie that I have seen, Coming to America. Um, this one... Um, I, I feel like it's a little ill-designed in a way that, like, Eddie Murphy is barely... See, he's in it, but, like, barely gets to do much. Um, I feel like he does a couple of his um, characters, the barbershop characters, um, the singer's name, the sexual chocolate singer, I forget. He gets to... Randy Watson. But they seem more just, like, recalls from the past rather than actually showcasing those characters because they're in it for just a second. Just like, oh, yeah, remember these guys? But they don't really give time to the comedy. For some reason, this cares so much more about the story than the original one and gives a lot of time to development of the Prince character, who, without spoilers, doesn't even tend to like matter to the overall story of the universe, coming to America universe that much. Um, so it, it just really lacked Eddie Murphy, doing Eddie Murphy is playing like a serious king role. He did spend 45 minutes um, introducing people, just like doing royal introductions and lots of musical performances. So I, I feel like if they they cut off having you know Gladys Knight and Salt and Pepper and all these other musical performances and actually you know focused on making a comedy movie, um, it might have succeeded a little more. It was nice to see them stretch out the world a little bit, but other than that, I think it was kind of a disappointment. Like focusing on the story over the original is like a classic comedy sequel pitfall, yeah. where they're like. Let's make a sequel to this comedy movie that people thought was super funny. But instead of focusing on all the funny stuff, let's focus on all the really complicated plot stuff because that's what everybody loves. Yeah, let's act like it's the character dramas that you really care about in their arts, not that there's just good jokes. Uh, Chance, have you seen the new Coming to America? Surprisingly enough, no, I haven't. I haven't gotten around to it yet. I want, I want to because I love the original Coming to America. But yeah, as far as the new one, I just have not had a chance to sit down and watch it. You might wonder if you're like me, where I was somewhat excited for it coming out, and then I saw the reviews, and this thing is getting destroyed. Like, it is very <laughs> negative. Because I feel like I'm actually more on the negative side than a lot of what I heard. A lot of it's just like, yeah, that's fine. I believe um, it's at like 
25% on Rotten Tomatoes or something? I don't think it's that low. I think it's something like the 50s last I saw. I thought it was really... I mean, we can look this up right now. Maybe I'm completely wrong. I don't I say... I being savaged. I do think Leslie Jones... Oh, no, it's 53. All right, I was wrong. She honestly gets the most competed bits of anybody, and I think she, she brings a needed energy to the movie. So I like to see her pop up. Fair. 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 Yeah. She gets to play, like, Leslie Jones in the movie. Like, her bit. I gotta be honest, Leslie Jones as a movie actress doesn't work for me. Like I, I think in roles like this, it's, it's like kind of supporting comedic not lead. Just I can see that. Yeah. She's just one of those people that like it feels like she left SNL to do movies, but she never stopped performing it like she was in an SNL skit, which is why any kind of long form Leslie Jones stuff becomes tiresome really quickly. It's the exact same problem. Where it's like, I feel like she is very funny for five Wiggs seconds. The problem. What? Kristen Wiggs, I don't agree with this at all, just because I think we already talked in the show how I think Kristen Wiggs I, 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 I didn't say Kristen Wiggs. Problem. I said Kate McKinnon. <laughs> no, no, but Kristen, I'm saying Kristen Wiggs gets... but she didn't play in I'm saying Kristen Wig didn't play into the SNL bits more. She tried to go so far away from no, it. No, exactly. And the I, industry, I, I think failed. I rather them stick with what they're good at and bring really? SNL like comedy to movies that don't live anymore. And this is my bit on Bar Vibrant Star again and why that movie is a masterpiece. To be fair, Kristen Wig actually had like a quite successful um movie career in a way that Kate McKinnon and Leslie Jones just don't. So I think there's a, I think there's I think there's something to be said about keeping your comedy roots if you come up SNL, but also like you're not doing five minute sketches anymore. You can't act like that in a movie because you'll be Kate McKinnon and every one of your characters is so incredibly irritating that you cannot watch a full movie of them. Except we're except weirdly enough in um, fucking bombshell. That is one of the more random like yeah, that, that's one of those rules where it's like it's Kate McKinnon, or it could be literally anyone else. Because I'm to think what she's not bad in it. Kate I don't think she's, bad no, she's not bad in it, but it's like it's a forgettable. It's like a it's a nothing role with like kind of could be played by almost anyone. There's not a sure. lot there. Sure, fair enough. But that, that's a lot of roles in that movie. Well, true, so, exactly. What's um, the funniest Kate McKinnon movie role? What's the what? The most funniest? successful Kate McKinnon movie role. You talking um, about like quality or cash? <clears throat> I'm thinking um, like quality. What was her funniest role? In a movie. Like was she good in anything? Was she this funny is... in Office Christmas Party? I can't remember. No one is funny in that. <laughs> um, let's see. Most successful. You don't have to spend too much time on this question. I just wanted to pop out, see if we had any. I'm I'm generally, I don't think I've legitimately I'm looking down her list of movies. I haven't seen a lot of them because oh. they're like rare. So I saw. All... I've seen Sisters in the last six months, and I don't remember her in them. But that was before. I feel like she wasn't even on this, though. I think no, she's she like was, she was she's on like, it at the time. Isn't she like a? I think she's like part of a lesbian couple or something. But that's like the entire yeah. joke, and it may be like thirty seconds long. That's it. Um, that's literally it. If you look at her, it, it is actually a shockingly large amount of the somewhat decent budget blockbusters that just absolutely failed. Like but she didn't have an amazing because, role in anything other than Ghostbusters. Yeah, it's, it's her career is terrible. Like and she's in Rough fine. Night, which is a bad movie, and Ooh. she is so she is so annoying in that movie. It's, um, she's in the Great American Classic yesterday podcast. <laughs> favorite, the best. Oh my god, yeah, she she movie. is she, she is unforgivingly bad in that movie. Um, everybody is unforgivably bad in that movie. I don't think everybody is. Lily James. The Beatles are unforgivably bad in that movie just for existing 
to that movie. I, 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 fuck, fuck out. Don't assault the Beatles because yesterday's bad. All right? No. We're not going to go there. <laughs> they never existed. That movie would have been made. Welcome to Zach Ford what shit's is, unpopular what? music hour. <laughs> hey. I, I like the kinks over the Beatles. What am I going to say? What's the oh guy going to do? That's, a, that's an awful thing. Whatever. <laughs> I will defend that. <laughs> Um, Chance, what's your last Letterbox movie? Uh, last one, I believe, was Chaos. Chaos Walking, <laughs> latest, <laughs> latest in a long line of YA failures. I think I'm not sure the book was YA. I, I didn't read it. I, th- I, from what I heard, it is. Yeah, but yeah, and this this movie is this movie's a fucking mess, man. It's, it's it's so it's the world itself is complicated itself because it's like all about how like this this like crew of humans crash on this planet. This isn't on Earth. They crash onto another planet, and like all the men are affected by this thing called the noise, where you can like see every thoughts that they have, but it only affects the men, and all the women are gone. So like, the, I don't, I don't know if this world is like women's greatest tactical advantage or their worst nightmare. <laughs> it, it really could be either one, honestly. And yeah, so Tom Holland and Daisy Ridley really, really plays a girl who crashes there. I haven't seen a girl in like years. And so it's kind of basically her trying to like get the fuck out of Dodge because no no one wants to be here for obvious reasons. Uh, interesting thing about this is, oh, like it's directed by Doug Lyman. It doesn't feel that way at all. Like any like any Joe Blow could have directed this movie. I don't think it would have had as stacked the cast as it did if if Doug Lyman didn't direct it. If you didn't have like a name like that behind the lens, I don't think it would have gotten like nearly as great a cast. Because like Lucas, your boy, Matt Nicholson. It's in this the movie. man, and he's not good. Wow, Mads Mikkelsen, Damian Bashir, Cynthia Revo, David Oyelowo. Wow, David Oyelowo and Dam- Damian Bashir, like the two people who I think are really actually Jimmy like, enjoyable in this film. David Oyelowo, I don't think he knows the movie he's in because he's acting in a completely different film than anybody else. David Bashir actually does have some. You're, you're muted, Zach. Can't hear you. <laughs> As a day Oello post Selma often kind of seems like he doesn't really know what movie he's in. That's true. That's very true. But yeah, uh, yeah Dan Bashir is also nice. There's a really like random cast like Kurt Sutter's in the movie. The guy creates Sons of Anarchy. Why? I do as far as I know, this book is like a pretty like acclaimed series. So I think that helps get the cast and, as well. And interesting enough, like like I used to the writer of the book and the movie, I used to live with his nephew. Like his nephew used to be my roommate, and oh. so I was able to. There was like here, like some behind 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 the scenes things about it. So I'm like, okay, it sounds interesting, but I remember seeing like every trailer I saw. I'm just like, wow, Doug Lyman after lockdown, especially like Doug Lyman's about to take back to back L's this year. That's sad because I do think he's a good director, and yeah. I really think he's about to start pushing really hard bridge tomorrow too. Hey, he'll go to space soon with Elon Musk. He is going to space, which, so he's he's living a good life. It's okay, and and maybe like he's just just make Tom Cruise movies now because those seem to be really like really big hits for him. Yeah. This this was originally set to come out in March 2019, and then yeah. they pulled it to do reshoots because it got terrible test screenings. Is McQuarrie taken over the MI franchise? Um, Mean Doug Lyman missed out his chance. I feel like he would have been like in line to do a Mission Impossible. At one point, he probably probably would have done one if McCoy didn't want to come back. I guarantee yeah. you, like he would have been the next call if should have McCoy didn't come back. Done number two, probably. 
No, no. Keep John Woo because that movie is hilarious. With that's, Joe, that's a John, John Woo movie. Tom Cruise. This was like videos. Chaos Walking's first script draft was written by Charlie, Charlie Kaufman. Kaufman. And, and then they threw out that entire draft. John Lee Hancock did a revision on it. Oh, fuck. I didn't know that. The Jesus. author of the book, John um, hey, Patrick Ness. Ness. Patrick Ness did a rewrite on it. I think if you're combining Charlie Kaufman and John Lee Hancock, it's a disaster to happen. That is kind which, of a statement about like how much your movie yeah. is a mess. Is if you get two people who are so different, and you're like, both of you are gonna are gonna take a shot at this. That means that they didn't know what they were doing. It's an overcorrecting. Like Charlie Kaufman was probably just like too ambitious, too weird. Let's just go the safest bet we can, which John Lee Hancock, which I don't know, might have left. Went that way. Um, I do like knowing the plot and knowing that it's like reading thoughts out loud. It sounds like something that should have always kept a paper. That does not seem like anything that could work cinematically. It has to be so obnoxious. Well, and like, and, uh, the, the thing is, like, it's 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 not as obnoxious because like they don't do it like all the time. Like a situation where you think your mom be racing, it's not racing, which is a problem. Like, you're drawing like inconsistencies like that. <laughs> you also you walk away very much knowing the, the name of Todd Tom Holland's character because. Like what he does, like he try, like the way he does, like when he's like in distress, he tries to like hide his thoughts. He'll constantly like repeat in his mind, like I am Todd Hewitt, I am Todd Hewitt, yeah. and he's. I swear to God, they say his name like fifty times in the movie. I assumed he just masturbated, and then he cleared <laughs> his thoughts. <laughs> I just remember this movie coming. Like I remember hearing what this movie was, and he was like, "Oh my God, Spider Man and Ray are going to be in a movie together," because you know that's how. Um, and Grindelwald. These... Yeah, it's just getting it's everyone hard. together. Um, whatever his character name was in Doctor Strange. The most forgettable, Casilius, Casilius, maybe. What the, what the fuck are you talking about? Matt Nicholson. Oh, Nicholson, Casilius, yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. I, I thought, I, I thought you're still. Mixing, my... I, I thought you're mixing up black dudes. I was, I'm not sure. They already got one. No, I'm not blinking, mixing up British black dudes. <laughs> like, you know, it's, it's funny because I remember watching the original trailer. I didn't even notice till now. Damon Bashir is basically like Latino Michael Stolberg. Like look, look them up. Look them up both beards. Like they look very similar. This is true. This is true. Damn yeah. sure um has one amazing performance, which is a better life. I love him that movie. I mean, sure, but he's also like he's he's a good actor. Like, no, absolutely. A lot of things, but... He's also one of those classic people who is a foreign actor who is really good when he's on his native language, and when they make him act in English, he often gets stuck in um big blockbusters that are terrible. Like he did, like one of the Conjuring movies, when it's like really one of the really bad Conjuring he was, movies. He was, he was the nun, yeah, yeah. He just get, he's one of those people that like I, they pull him for the prestige of him, like his persona, but then they put him in these just you know dumpster fire blockbusters that just don't have anything going on. Yeah, I mean, so God chaos bless, walking. God bless, yeah, God bless Covenant, but yeah, that's true. Chaos walking, not good. No, not very good. Yeah, can't wait for the sequel. Chaos running. I'm assuming. Also, you All right, not... that would be the third one. Chaos. They do. Um, they do comedy. much like much like every movie. Like they do. They do set up the sequel. Yeah. Which this movie cost a hundred million dollars. It shows. Man, you mean a hundred million dollar movie? Yikes! What Lyman? No, I'm just shocked that this is like. Oh, okay. That was made for that much money. <laughs> yeah, hey, just like, especially considering how terrible it was going. What's up? I have a question for you. Shoot. What what'd you last log in Letterboxd? Look at me. Look at you. Look at you taking over. Um, yeah. Okay, so the last thing I did was 2016's Your Name, which is um, 
arguably the most beautiful animated movie ever. Um, this there? is just absolutely gorgeous uh, story of coming in, coming of age, and I don't really want to go too much into the plot because it's basically hard to talk about this without spoiling it, and I don't want to do that for everyone. You should go out and watch it. Uh, please watch the uh, subtitled version. I think that's the best version. Um, Did you watch both? No, but I I, I, I read, I, I read, I read, a, read a lot of I read a lot of bad things about the dub. I read a lot yeah. of bad things about the dub. Um, who who voices the dub? No, nobody. No, they're really literally you. You literally like this is not Studio Ghibli where it's like who's in the dub? Oh, it's Liam Neeson. It's like no, well, they, they. It's never a good sign when your when your dub when your and, dub has nobody. And, of course, and and Zach and Zach's boy Billy Crudup. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> there was famous people at Weathering with you. At least. So this Once it got big enough name, I guess, and then so whether with you had more of a some notes on it when it got here. Yeah. They, yeah. So who was in that? Yeah. Look at it up. It yeah. Riz Ahmed. Name. That's good. Yeah, I know. Um Allison Brie. She's somebody. She's somebody. There was some third person. I don't know who it is. But oh well. We'll never know. Right. Well, tr trying to read through the cast on the anime movies is difficult to do but every time. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, no, so we, your we, name we is wonderful and gorgeous and amazing, and everyone should watch it because it is um, not only one of the most gorgeous animated movies, but also just one of the best movies of 2016 and probably of the 2010s overall. Um, kind of uh, embarrassed that it took me this long to get to it. Please watch go, it. It's wonderful. Go for the remake. Go for the remake, right? Oh dear lord! I, I what on earth are you going to do a live action remake? Here's the thing, I, don't, I don't. I don't work. think that. I don't think that premise is like inherently built for. I don't think that premise is an A inherently Japanese or B inherently animated. So I think it could work. See, I think that some of that movie is the visual style, and I think that when you sure. go live action, you're going to have such a kind of generic movie. Like I think. I, your name could be very generic if you make it in live Classic. action because it just won't have the because part of that is that movie is just stunning. There are shots of it that are just like, wow, I want that as a piece of art. And I just don't think you recreate that. Is it an American live action remake? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, that's the problem. I think there's a cultural specificity to the characters in action that's going to get lost. And it's just going to seem like a Netflix team movie when they make it here. Yeah, probably. Maybe. Who is remaking it? I think Mark. I think Mark Webb's on it. I don't know if I don't know if it's like. I thought you were about to say Mark Wahlberg. Really into your name. Hey, you know who's really into your name, by the way? Jim Belushi, classic anime fan. Jim Belushi. He has a good Twitter to follow. It's all about his like pot farm and then like asking for anime movie recommendations because he did work for Ghibli and wants to know more. Because isn't he like the Impano? Ponya. I think it, I think it was in Ponya. Is he in Ponya or Porco Rosso? It's one of it's one, yeah, it's one of those two. I think it might be Porco Rosso. Or maybe no, he's I'm, in both. I'm not sure. He's in everyone. He's their Ratzenberg. <laughs> he's their Ratzenberg. Every time we need a dub, we go, we go okay, jump, jump yeah. Belushi. Yeah, he's definitely not in Porco Rosso. All right. This is we're gonna go down the rabbit hole. Um, <laughs> we talked about your name. Your name is wonderful. Go watch it, everyone. I will not spoil it. Um, let's continue on to the main discussion, which is of course Small Axe, the five film series from director Steve McQueen. Um, before we dig into the movies, I wanted to ask you guys a quick question, which is um, 
previous experience with McQueen, and then what you've thought of his work up to date, Zach Ford. My experience with McQueen is just a casual friendship. Uh, we would, you know, hang out about once a month, sometimes be each other at other parties. Um, as far as my relationship with his movies, um, I I have never seen Hunger. Um, and then post that, um, I said, stay caught up with everything. I mean, especially, you know, 12 Years a Slave made him a director to watch. So I made sure I, you know, kept up with his career. I've, I've been fairly mixed. Um, like I'm not a shame fan and maybe on a rewatch I can kind of get what that's going for. Um, more 12 Years a Slave, I have problems with it's It's, the, it's writing that I have problems with. So it's not really as far as the direction is pretty beautiful. I think it's a very overwritten uh, movie. Um, Widows is a fucking blast. And I do kind of like Steve McQueen. Um, I wanted him to experiment with genre, bring his kind of artfulness um, to the high genre like he did for Widows and, and bringing it with other things. Um, but I mean, I, I he's an ambitious guy. He's a thoughtful guy. And I like him going for new things. I was so interested hearing that he's, this is really an experimental thing he was going for, making, you know, a five movie series um, in a way. And, and, had very sincere roots to do it. It was like a love letter to his family and his community. And he wanted his, you know, elder family members to see themselves on screen. And so when I hear that's being made, I'm like, I trust him and I want to see what his, you know, heart created here. Uh, same question to you, Chance. Yeah, I've seen everything that he's directed. And I, I think it was like around the time where Tobias Love was coming out. And I heard like, oh, he's like this like really great director from from England. I'm like, really, a black British director? I got to see named named after the star of The Great Escape. I got I got to see this shit. So I went about. I watched Hogger. I watched Shame. Uh, Shame was one of my favorite movies of the past decade. I think that film was phenomenal. And put to get put what is maybe the best performance of the past decade on screen. Michael Fassbender. I think he's fucking excellent in that film. Probably should have won Best Actor, but there was no. That's not a possibility. But he's literally better than anybody. You could have given that Oscar to that year, um, but yeah, like I also really, I'm really digging like his more mainstream projects. I really love Totally the Slave, uh, Widows, one of my favorites of the last, I'm not last year, um, 18 was the year it came out. Yeah, really love that movie. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm he's one of those dudes where like I will anytime like, he's down to new projects in that same vein as like you know like Ryan Coogler, Taika Waititi. Like, anytime announced like a new project, like yes, I'm there. I don't care what it is, but just 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 injected injected right into my veins. Uh, so yeah, I heard we were getting like five movies for Steve McQueen. I was I was pumped, and yeah, uh, I think this is a this is an amazing cinematic achievement. Yeah, it's um. So I'm also with Zach. I have not seen Hunger. Um, and I was just looking at his career. It's kind of amazing that this guy has only made um small acts in four other movies in twelve years. Like that's a kind of impressively low work rate for somebody who I'm surprised that at no point they ever went after. Like it, it's surprising that we have seen even less rumors about McQueen like trying to get McQueen to do a Star Wars trying, like there's doesn't even seem to be the rumors that exist about trying to McQueen to sign on to major projects in the way well, I mean I also feel like she aren't, aren't going to look at him because I feel like he wouldn't he wouldn't do it I don't think he'd do it I'd be, it'd be cool if he did I would love to see Steve McQueen's blade but I don't yeah. think he'd do it I think I mean okay. after Widows I think there's a better yes. argument for getting him Wait. Barry Jenkins is doing Lion King too. Anything can happen. <laughs> that's that's yeah, that's very true. But you know, Widows Widows is still like that's still a personal connection to him because it's based on a British miniseries that he grew yeah. up watching. 
So, yeah, yeah, I feel like he still has that personal attachment there. So, and well, that's the thing you can kind of see with all of his work. It's he does things where he has personal attachment to. It looks like his personal attachment to like a Marvel comic or a Star Wars or a DC comic. I don't feel like I don't feel like he'd touch it. I would love yeah. to see him try. And like, maybe what like, if it turns out? What if it turns out he's a huge fit Zach Braff fan, and then Disney gets him to do the live action remake of Chicken Little? It's sure. gonna happen. Why not? <laughs> Steve McQueen's Chicken Little. Is that really want? Um, I do want to mention I looked up his um, in development projects. It looks like his next movie is a World War II documentary. Is it really? Um, so it's going, so going to Peter Jackson route? It's called The Occupied City about Amsterdam under Nazi occupation. In okay. World War II. It then has uh, uh, not much enough information for two projects that are in development, but one is called The Untitled Paul Robeson Project. So a Paul Robeson biopic seems like his next narrative feature, which could be interesting. Yeah. Okay. It's an interesting filmmaker. Um, I, I'd really like to try a horror movie, like a straightforward horror movie, not like you know racial paranoia horror movie. Yeah, I mean, honestly, at this point, I feel like I'm 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 down to let him do whatever he wants to do. Um, he just like he feels like he makes interesting choices. This one, in some ways, I, in some ways, it's interesting because I feel like Small X is more personal and yeah. um, smaller than anything else he's done. Um, it feels like the in some ways the biggest risk. The other ones are like. You know, Twelve Years a Slave is obviously not a movie that everyone's going to be like enjoying. But there's like a large story. There's a history of success with subject ma- that subject matter, even some of his other movies. And then Small X really does feel like. I mean, maybe this is bigger in Britain. And I would be interested to know, like, you know, what kind of resonance these stories have um, going into them to like the people who've grown up in that culture in that country. Um, these are not things that we around the world know about. Like, you don't hear about the Mangrove Trial outside of you know in the u.s anyway i mean i've never heard about it like any of this stuff um I, if you'd asked me was there racism directed towards you know people you know people of color in britain in the 60s and 80s i would have been like probably yes but only based on the fact that the same thing happened in the u.s i wouldn't have had like any actual knowledge of this but i think that's what works about this this collection the fact that the, the like the theme like the general themes of these five stories they do have international play like a lot of these issues that are dealing with in these movies like we are dealing with here in the states oh absolutely so I, feel like the, so I feel like they translate really well to different audiences they're very british specific stories with universal applications like exactly. everyone can understand them. um let's jump right into the first one so let's talk about we're gonna we chose i took the right i took our individual rankings of the five movies and then i created I also did change my rankings too, which was changing, but I took the rankings a while ago and created this order because we um, we wanted to not necessarily, if we followed Steve McQueen's order that he put them up in, um, we would have ended up talking about the ones, some of the ones we were less passionate towards the end, the ones we were most passionate at the beginning, and we wanted to have like a gradual gradient towards our favorites. Um, so we're going to start with a story, Alex Weedle. So Alex Weedle is um, the story of a kid who grows up in foster care um, uh, in the country uh, with um, white foster parents and sort of doesn't understand um, his own culture, moves to England, gets involved with some people who, with people in like the black West African community who kind of teach him the ropes, teach him how um, life works. He's a little bit green coming in. Um, He gets involved in some drug activities, some, uh, the music scene gets, ends up getting arrested as part of, um, the Brixton riots goes to prison. Um, we have a couple seasons of him in prison talking about like, um, 
how to free yourself is to free your mind and reading and like learning about your culture and learning about how words and power and knowledge is power. And then um, the movie basically ends with him getting out and um, in a title card at the end, we find out he went on to become a famous novelist, which is um, sort of just the, the end point, but rather than a part of the story. Um, what did everyone think of this one? And then I'll, I'll see the photos of Zach first. All right. And, um, I mean, this, so this has became my least favorite one. I think it's, uh, I don't want to say being mean because this is a masterpiece from Project, but I think it's, it's the worst made in a way. I think primarily it's just trying to get a lot of story while keeping a, a pretty, you know, slight time to where I feel unsatisfied in a lot of ways. A lot of things feel rushed. I think especially his kind of, um, you know, evolution into, uh, you know, I don't man a culture or like into the writer or like person that can create change to his words, um, is very rushed at the end. Someone who's maybe toning down the you know the radical protesting and finding his his route, um, and his way he can use intelligence. I feel that that that's hashed out in like two minutes. Um, I think he cares much more about the first half in this, which is like him assimilating um, to the culture, which is interesting, but I think it just um, neglects kind of the more interesting parts of Alex Riedel's um, evolution. Yeah, I think big, I think one of the biggest problems with this movie is the fact that for being only like an hour and change, it's kind of hard to follow. Like it will instantly, like we'll constantly cut back between you know, him like him on the outside, him maybe in present day, him when he's like just learning the culture, him in prison again, back to the outside. You never really know like when you are in the story. Like when he got to the end, I thought we I thought we were still at the part, but before he got even to before he went to prison. So like, I think that's a problem. And the thing with this film, the thing with this particular story is the fact that it is actually an interesting concept. Like taking a dude who is basically kind of like culture blind to himself. And basically like, learning that, but yeah, I mean, between like, you know, learning that black college, become, becoming becoming a famous like reggae singer <laughs> to becoming a drug dealer, becoming an integral part of riots. Like it's, it's just way too much to squeeze into one hour. Yeah. It's, it's a really disjointed story. Um, it, it really would, I think be improved if they had a focused main timeline, like is the main timeline we're coming back to him in prison is it him before prison? Is it him after prison? Like there needs to be like the concrete. There needs to be the place that we keep going back to. And the problem is they treat all three storylines as the same and as as important. Like they're like this would work if he was in prison and they were doing flash forwards and flashbacks. The problem is they really just kind of jump around. And there's yeah. it's not always clear. And yeah, I do agree with Zach. This is one that like they needed to, I feel like McQueen really wanted to talk about this guy and he finds him interesting. And maybe Alex Weedle also should have been two hours and really dug into the story. Um, there's some of these that feel like they should have been longer, which is actually like, it's interesting. Um, I think they're so good, but there are definitely a couple that I think there's longer. And this is one where it feels like either you needed to have a more specific focus, cut out some parts of his life. Like, I think you could have done a really great movie about just what it's like to be a black man and coming into a culture like black not understanding black culture and having to learn your own culture because the way you were brought up you were isolated from your culture because you were put with white foster parents and they were, didn't let you engage with your own culture and then being thrown into a situation where you walk in and you're like the country bumpkin except to the cops you're 
a black person and you're potentially dangerous and you have to you have to act and behave a different way to stay safe and you know to like live your life but you just don't have that knowledge because you grew up in a situation where you just never would have learned it yeah i um to compare this to uh, what we'll talk about later red white and blue i think also um fills a lot of like a life into a, a short amount of story <laughs> i think what makes that one function that this is missing is still a central relationship and central conflict that carries over through the whole movie so like red white and blue you're still very involved in what's happening between him and his father that keeps you interested in and happening with his father's you know criminal case so there's something still kind of linking all the other events together while this is um you know missing a, a central point to care to other than the evolution of the character but once again i i never felt fully attached to what he was going through it, it almost at points seemed like different characters um i think especially at the end when you know we kind of see him going through this kind of like renaissance in a way discovering himself um, as a writer, you, you're just told this. You're just you witness him learning from um, his prison mate what it means to you know be learn from reading and, and evolve your mind, but you don't see him put that into action, and so you never really understand the man he became. It has that frustrating biopic thing where they have the end title cards that tell you information you wanted to see in the movie, like it tells you, oh, this guy went on to do all this stuff. It's like, but you as a viewer and audience are like, well, then why am I not getting to see that? Why do I have to just read this guy went on to do all this stuff? Um, none of the other stories really ask you to um, just read a big part of his story. Like they all yeah. have, like Mangrove and Red, White, and Blue, they, th obviously these people continue <clears throat> on. They continue having lives, but none of the stuff that they tell you in the title cards, you needed to see because it's just a continuation of what you've already seen. And yeah, Alex they, feels like what's coming next is the part that you have not seen at all in the narrative. And you're like, why are you telling me he does something that I haven't seen at all? Yeah. And I, and I mean, like I, I'll, I agree with you. Like it would benefit greatly from having like a story structure, like, you know, like have it be like, like have it be bookend with him, like going in jail, him coming out a changed man. And then like showing the events in between. Uh, I think the act, I think the actor, like, the main guy, I don't know his name, but I think he's good in the role. I think he's doing what he. I think he's doing what he can. Problem is, uh, due to the writing and the editing, he's not. There's not really a whole lot of consistency in that performance. Like kind of like Zach said, he does. You can feel like two different characters from one part to the next, and then certain storylines just get dropped in the middle with no, like like almost unceremoniously. Yeah, she Cole is really good in it. She Cole's good. It's it's a good central performance. Um, I do think there's a struggle around it that there is not necessarily. Um, a lot of the stories benefit by having at least two interesting characters and there are interesting characters in his orbit but never one that specifically isolates them as like the second most important character um, and maybe that would work better if you had like a, a more structured narrative where it was so focused on him but it does feel like it takes time to focus on other characters that none of the other characters necessarily pop the way you would like them to um I'm trying to give credit. Oh, there, I got his name. Um, I do think Robbie G or Gee, who plays Simeon in prison, is fantastic. And he's, he's good. You know, he has a lot of soul and has a spirit. This, he seems like a pretty working actor, you know, compared to a lot of people. He's um, in Snatch. Yeah, he's in, he he's in, Patt he's in right. Paddington, too. Is he um, really? He's Mr. Oh, Barnes. He I don't know who he is. I think he was the black, the black inmate that never talked. Okay. He's well, also in Underworld. 
He's done a lot. He, he has a career. Um, he works. So he works. I, I would like him to get a bigger role from this because I think he has a lot. He has a very soulful quality to him. And uh, also just in uh, a good presence. I want to say. But yeah. He's my favorite performance in the movie. Interesting. 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 Yeah. I think um, there's like, you know, there's a couple of good moments. I like Crucial Rockers a bit um, for their music. Um, this is kind of, you know, and this continues to the trend that you see throughout them is that music is hugely important. And I think McQueen makes a really um, concerted effort to, to point out that music is culture. And yeah. that's really important that in some ways cultures are divided by the music they listen to. And they, I think he makes clear throughout the series look at what the white people listen to look at what the black people listen to there's like a clear like this is cultural um people listen to this because it's part of the culture and it's i like, think the it's music like, is also used very differently in each movie and the genre like this has been deemed a lot as like a reggae music th series but it's not even true like reggae um is somewhat in mangrove it's mostly um in alex Riedel. um it really evolves into what is dub rather than reggae and lovers rock um, and some That's other right. like subgenres of it, and then you know, Red and Blue is Motown and soul, um, and, and you know, more populated. And then Education has probably the least music to it. When it does, it's more of the like British rock invasion stuff that was happening at the time. So he really delves into all of the you know Black British music, um, you know, through the times, um, but also a little bit of the the more popular British stuff as well. Absolutely. Um... Anyone have any more thoughts on Alex Weedle, or can we continue on to the next one? I'm good. All right, yeah. So the next one we we're going to talk about is education. Um, education is the story of a kid who's in school, and he's being a kid, and he's goofing off, and he's maybe not doing the best in all his grades. And um, his teacher decides, all right, we're going to send him to this special school. And then um, we encounter an activist who talks to his mom, talks to him, is like, yeah, this is part of the British plan. They're sending black kids to schools for the educationally subnormal. And then basically becomes um, – it's basically just a commentary on the education system using this individual story as um, the main focus, which is obviously um, a problem in Britain and a problem in literally anywhere that there are different races in schools. Um, yeah. So this is probably the most universal of all of them. Uh, yeah, this is, uh, Zach, you're a teacher. Yeah. That's not, uh, not, not an education. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, we, we briefly did talk about how every, you know, the whole series is pretty resonant to stuff happening in America as well. It's the magic of what Steve McQueen was able to create, but this one just especially maybe because I am so close to it. Um, it, it's just like an issue that was, you know, never solved. Um, education, you know, equity um, for minorities that, you know, never giving the opportunity um, for, what's the word I'm looking for? For, for you know, mo movement. Um, it, it's, you know, this one, the second watch, it kind of hit me a little stronger to help me a little more and made me a little more um, doubting of my own um, habits and maybe even biases um, in my profession. Um, I did like get a little hurt watching the guy sing the animal song for five minutes um, to the kids. I don't want to say I've done that. I've definitely played ukulele in my class um, and have done other kind of show offy bits for my own attention's sake. Um, 
I will but, admit, uh, as watching it this time, I saw that character and I was like, that is the most Zach Ford character not, I've ever seen. That guy's a horrible, neglectful teacher. <laughs> and um, that's not me, but I do love that. No, no, no. Because not the whole character, specifically the bit of playing songs to children and asking them to name who wrote them. That was the Zach Ford bit. Did I, did, did I tell you that, so to go off topic a little bit, my students were complaining that I would only play instrumental music in class. And like, can you play stuff with words? And I was like, okay. So we're going to be listening to only stuff from 1971 so I can make my top 100 playlist. <laughs> so now that's what they listen to. Um, but uh, must hate you. But this, the, the, um, real quick more about the bit is... This movie is um, like 62 minutes long. Um, I think at least a third of it is just Sky playing um, the song by Animals. It just goes and goes. Uh, but this one, I said on Rewatch Pie, is, is, is the most devastating in a way to where I feel like we just haven't <coughs> improved at all as far as it, it, our systematic racism through education. Yeah, it's um, <laughs> yeah, we really haven't over time haven't gotten any better at this. Like we still, you can look at the statistics. We know that you know your race is dependent on your education attainment, and like especially disciplinary levels, um, and like are off by race all the time. It's certainly not an accomplishment. As a teacher, I do want to backtrack a little bit just to defend my own profession. I will say, say we haven't got better at all as false because this movie portrays the special ed schools as completely neglect neglectful and just like a daycare. And I would say special ed programs I have experienced that do not function like that. But I do think that sometimes, um, you know, students of color do get you know placed in programs maybe unfairly or or, or not given the, the um, you know the opportunity, especially how a lot of the public school systems in um, diverse areas don't get, receive the same funding as places in other areas, so the opportunity is already decreased automatically. I think that maybe is the more primary issue, uh, maybe not um, you know, intentional disregarding the kids as much as you know, the, the systematic you know, disregard for those school districts. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't, have you ever, I mean, I, it's definitely like, it's definitely an older version but like, I think that was probably very accurate, especially to the attempts in America. Um, I do think this movie also does the smart thing, which is they specifically um, bring up education reform in reference to Margaret Thatcher being the education yeah. secretary. I think that is very, 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 very intentional that they picked this specific time frame where you can bring it up and not only, because obviously talking about education and saying, man, education isn't um, equal for everyone and you know, equality is not a thing and equity is not a thing across the board. But then being able to tie that, especially to a very, very famous British politician, is obviously going to be more resident. Yeah, who also, who also famous kind of fucked education has been Britain. Like she, like she was. Yeah. yeah, that yeah. was like the most dooming wink wink moment in the movie. Like you're being like, ah, oh, fuck. Like this doesn't get solved. You know, it doesn't turn out well for them because once they say her name, right? <laughs> Margaret, Margaret Thatcher, fuck. <laughs> um, let's see. The parents are really good in this. Um, yeah, I, I, well, my favorite moment from this entire movie is when, like, she's kind of coming to terms with the fact that her kid can't read. <laughs> just like, read this, and just like the react, like just the way like she just like embraces her kid, but the fact like, it's like I'm like I'm not mad. Where she, she, the kid thinks he's gonna be like in such trouble because he can't read the word on the page, but just like the way she yeah. reacts towards him, it's just like it, it's a very warm moment, and that's my favorite one of the entire movie. 
Yeah, there's also a lot of good moments like that. There's the grandfather at the meeting where he gets up and talks about his 17-year-old grandson. Yeah. Can't read or write, and he's just like, I didn't go to school. I didn't have these opportunities, but I'm not going to let my, you know, they've been in school. How is, you know, like, how is the system so broken that somebody has lasted through this many years of school and um, still is not accomplishing well, which is, of course, something you compare very favorably to the American system. Be like, there are definitely yeah. kids who slip through the cracks all the time. And the teacher goes, Oh, you're not very good, but we'll keep passing you, just pass you up, pass you up, pass you up so you can get out. And we end up with people who, I mean, I mean, I'm sure you've all experienced this as we all went to college. I'm sure we remember being in those classes freshman year and, you know, you have to do like, you have to trade a paper with a kid and you're reading somebody else's paper and you're like, dude, you're writing at like a nine year old level. How on earth did you get through school? How did you graduate? How did your school fail you to such levels that you graduated high school and, and you're sitting there in front of me and you can't write an outline or you can't write like a basic, you know, three part S, like a five part, you know, like even the basic, the most basic writing things you just can't do. You know, it's... um it's kind of scary how people somehow manage to get through a system that is supposed to educate them and simultaneously are not competent at any of the things they're supposed to learn. I think the moment that you brought up of the guys um, saying this about, so it was also important broadening the scope of it. Otherwise it's very, like a very specific problem of people getting put into the special ed schools. But when he goes and say, you know, I, that's horrible about these schools, but even my grandson is in, is in mainstream education and is also, you know, gained as mistreated and forgotten. So we can see, like, it's not just a special ed problem, it is a general education issue as well, as far as the, you know, neglect in a way um, of getting these kids some upper mobility. Yeah, I also want to give a shout out to uh, Naomi Aki in this short. Uh, most people probably recognize her. She played Jana in Rise of Skywalker. I didn't see anything outside of Rise of Skywalker except from this. And yeah, she plays the government official who's investigating these special schools. And yeah, just like the the, the poise she brings to the role, the, gra- the gravitas, the just the fact that the, just, you know, the, her mentality is like caring about these kids, like really wanting to get to the bottom of this. I think, she, I think she's really good. I hope to see her do more things in the future. I think there's tons of great performances in this. I said the sister looks like it's played by Tamara Lawrence. I think it's really great. It's a great sister character, just very caring. And, you know, they give her enough of her own life and story, um, but also just make her this consoling thing. Just like listening her read at her brother's like side school, just kind of very tough. I, I, I do shout out the mom's name, Charlene White, because this is the performance of all the movies that has grown to me the most. I think she does just own the second half of this movie between the scene that you talked about, Chance, but also just the final scene of uh, witnessing the quick growth, which I do think is really realistic. Like, I think people can dismiss as, like, how's he go from reading nothing to reading this pretty advanced book? But I think just with the attention and the engagement that she provided, I, I found that very true. Um, but seeing um, her reaction to seeing the opportunity that still exists because it's almost like now that she's given up on him but her hope is kind of getting lost of what and this was kind of reopening knowing that she she hasn't um you know lost opportunity for a kid to become successful that there's still growth if she you know continues the action that she has started putting into place and i think that's the best scene in the movie is the final scene it's a good scene and also shout out what we're doing it joe martin who plays tabitha bartholomew who's the like the secondary teacher at the end i think she's also really good presence i think they're also they have this really he has a really good knack throughout these films for getting these people who are not name actors who you have maybe seen in like a couple things if you watch like specifically british stuff but he has these really good character actors who have this a really interesting look they've got really accurate accents it's just like they've just got the they're just interesting 
character actors on screen without having any star power star power behind them. Um, I think the best performance in all small acts is um, the young actor Nathan Moses, who plays the boy Ashley. He goes sixty four. 86, 102. Uh, yeah, I remember that, kid. Where they're going back and forth. Yeah. 144. I think that's an Academy Award winning math right there. There was a great moment in that scene where they're like, times tables go up to 13. <laughs> See, we all live in this dumb society where every times table you're ever given yeah. is through 12. And that's why he teaches everyone to think you only that, do times tables at 12. That's a real like teaching to the test kind of statement there. Cause it's like the, the it, they didn't say test. They said the curriculum of the state says only the 12, but that's like how we say it. the test actually only has, has to do the skill in this specific way. So that's how we're going to teach it rather than, you know, where the kids interest lies, the more, you know, kind of Montessori progressive approaches for you want to learn all the time staples up to a hundred. Let's fucking do it. And um, this is a weird thing I started tracking is Kate Dickey is in this from Game of Thrones. This is one of like, Oh, that's right. There's like five or six Game of Thrones people throughout the series um, that, that randomly pop up in moments. And uh, just going to shout her out. Cause it was, it's just a random trend I noted while watching this was, wow. A lot of those Game of Thrones actors who are obviously British actors um, ended up just ended up in this. Um, does anyone have any more thoughts on education, or should we move on to the next one? Let's do it. Um, so the next we want to talk about, I'm going to let Chance go first because I know this is his favorite. Let's talk about Red, White, and Blue, which is the story of Leroy Logan, who is a um, he is basically a scientist who decides to join the police force. Because he wants to promote change from within, and he becomes like the face of their recruitment drive. And um, yeah, the British Peace Force was not necessarily ready to break um, break the the spawn of racism from the ranks. They uh, so his success is that he tried, but not necessarily was as successful as he would have liked. I know you love this one, Chance. Why don't you talk about uh, what in particular this one stands out for you? I really like when John Boyega plays. Kings, but actually, this does go to so Detroit was one of my favorite movies of 2017, in which John Boyega does play a cop, and like the whole back end of that movie is basically because he is a cop, was a cop during the whole situation, he's kind of groped in with everyone else, and so like he basically ostracized the black community. And it's interesting that this is, he was the star of this one because this whole movie is basically the same point that that last that last like 20 30 minutes of Detroit was trying to make. Um. I think for this one, for me, what what makes me love most out of any of them is the fact that I find Leroy Logan's story and character the most interesting of anyone in Small, as well as the best performance. I think John Boyega crushes it in this film. I think he's excellent. Uh, I know he's an actor who uh, he again, again because of his you know political stance and you know stuff he does for this community and you know, people in need. Yeah, I remember he, he was a time when he was worried about his future career. Give he, he, trying to work like this because I think he's a very good actor. I don't think I think he should continue to work. I would love to see him get more roles because I think he's excellent. And I think what works about this is the fact that it re really focuses on that struggle between him and his community, how he's basically seen as like a race trader. Um because he's going and he's helping he's trying to aid a system that oppresses that oppresses people in his community. But he's not doing it because he believes that's right. He's doing it for the opposite reason. He's doing it because he wants to try and fix that. And he thinks the only way you can do it is within. And he I, I like that he I like that he's idealistic. I like what he stands for. 
but I also like that he see like his journey, like to realize that it's not that easy. Because like this, this is just a very like systematically broken. It, it, it's the, the system is systematically broken, is like kind of redundancy, but you know what I mean. Um, I think that the 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 journey, like you want him to succeed, but like with every step he takes forward, he takes two steps back. It's it's hard to watch. It's he goes on a super hard journey, and it's it's gratifying in a way where like. You know he's getting somewhere, but you know it's slow going. You know he's making progress, but it's also slightly heartbreaking in a way just because the way it ends. Like you know he's not making any like real progress just yet. So, yeah, I think that the story of Leroy Logan is what makes me really drawn to the story of Red, White, and Blue. I mean, it's an amazing story. He's simultaneously a race traitor to his people, and his his colleagues look at him as a traitor to them because he doesn't just fall in line with the thing. He's kind of caught between these two worlds and watching um, Boyega deal with that is kind of amazing. Um, and, I, and I like, I like that dilemma. I like that, you know, you know, like, like, like he, no matter what he does, he never sees doing the right thing. Right. Right. It's also just like, I, I love seeing this on some level because what happened in star Wars and he did kind of get the shaft a lot in those, in that trilogy, you do go back to the first one and, um, you yeah. think he's probably going to get a lot larger role, and he does kind of get consistently sidelined. In he, he, he gets progressively sidelined. The movies goes on, and the movies go on. Yeah, yeah. Um, at least in Last Jedi, he has he, he's in a different storyline, but he has his own storyline. Yeah, he, and then he's, you got to, own, he's got his own thing going in the Last Jedi. And then Rise of Skywalker, it's like, yeah, we don't really care about you. You're not really that important. What? <laughs> yeah, I, it's, ironically it's, enough, the black guy got the shaft. I kind of feel like this happened last Jedi too. I would also argue his storyline definitely seems like the B plot comedy. I mean, I mean, it is, but at least, nah, he, at least, at least he has story. a at least he has a story though. At least he has a story in last Jedi. I mean, yeah, but yeah. I mean, I think like the disposable part of it. I don't think Johnson. Excuse the thing. I think that we look at that as disposable. I don't think Johnson looks at that storyline as disposable, no. and I think that's why he gave it to Boyega because he wanted to have somebody in that storyline that he knew could perform. Exactly, um, so, and I think that I think that even though the storyline is my least favorite of that entire movie, even though I love Black Jedi, that's my least favorite part of the movie. I right. think the thing, the thing that keeps me invested in is John Boyega because he's such a good actor. I love him as Finn. He really is really good, and that's why I was really happy to see him coming back and, and being like, "Yes, this is exactly what you should do." You had the you did the blockbuster thing. You made the money, so that's good. It was not the best experience. He was pretty vocal about how now it was not his favorite experience. It's actually, kind of it was. A sort of a shocking uh, occurrence after Rise of Skywalker to see two of the three lead actors. Well, all three, four, all three actually. They were not a fans of that. Like they, there was a lot of, um, yeah, this did not turn out the way we wanted it to. And so watching him so quickly get into something else with quality directors and, you know, a quality story and really just, you know, just quality material to work with was really great to see because, you know, sometimes people do the blockbuster thing and they don't like the experience they had, and they just end up getting shuffled like off to the left, and it's like, all right, well, who's next? We'll get somebody else to be in the blockbusters, and they don't just don't get anything else great. It was awesome to see him go to this. He's really good in this. Um, I'm glad he won a Golden Globe, even though supporting actor is the most nonsensical, ridiculous take yeah, I've ever seen. The, the, He's competing I mean, against fucking Shit's Creek, which I love Shit's Creek, but how is biggest, those even comparable? The, the big, biggest problem is the fact that he's the main character of one episode yeah. of this of this series, I guess. Yeah. I think that's the so, most of the reason they ran him in supporting is because he's... It has to be. 
one. Yeah, he's so the lead I, of one I, of them. Exactly. And I feel like if this is when this is eligible for Emmys, like he'll be in like best lead of a movie, or a miniseries of movie. Mini, yeah, the miniseries movie. He'll probably win that too. I think. I, I, yeah. I hope he wins. I really hope he wins. This is one of the two that I really do wish that they had, um, maybe elongated a little bit and then pulled out for Oscar contention because I think there are two of them, two of the uh, of the small X movies that really could be legitimate Oscar contenders, and that is Absolutely. this one and Mangrove. Mangrove should be a best picture easily. It Mangrove is legitimately might be the best movie of the year. Um, I mean, it's not my favorite in this series, but we'll, we'll discuss that. Uh, <laughs> um, I, I not to spoil our future episode, we're going to talk about performances, but John Boyega is my best actor of the year in movies. I, I find the performance remarkable. I think it's the best combination of his just pure movie star shine with you know serious acting credit as well just because even some small moments right it's just like that's a, what a movie star can do when he's like dancing with his cousin but i think more really tiny one second moment that i love is he's uh they just had like um i don't know if it's thanksgiving dinner they had dinner with his family um, there's a lot of tension between his dad and, uh, you know, it, it, I think it's his aunt, but I don't know if it's his biological aunt, they just call him aunt. This is what I'm trying to figure out the second on the second watch. His friend's mom, um, his, like, best friend's mom. Um, there's a lot of tension going on in that scene. He's already a cop and has all his tension his dad. He's cleaning dishes, um, you know, with his friend, and, and his dad kind of just walks by really grumpily. And uh, Boyega does this, like, kind of goofy dance but with still a serious face and it's just like a little like kind of like fuck this ship but we're gonna keep going and that that scene is just a remarkable um just being in the moment and being in that character at that that point of how that character could react when you're hanging out with your friend but you're also dealing with you know it's, it's kind of like a look at this guy moment um i uh looked up his upcoming projects he is still looking guy to be hired there's a, there's seven projects between in development and production and one movie coming out later uh but some three. interesting stuff to look forward to what do you say is it pack room three that is not on the list please and no. i hope please that does no. not happen <laughs> um so there's a movie later about pack room two he was better than charlie hunnam was in the first one that's, so not, movie that's not a compliment though I mean, it is. Yes, it literally, it literally. It's, a, it's, it's, it's the biggest it's, problem. The first I, one. Had. It's called damning with fake praise, though. I think the most important one on here that's in po- the only one in post production because it's uh, only important because it co-stars on um, what we all know our greatest actress under the age of thirty, Olivia Cook. Um, called this is a bit on the show. I I like her a lot, and I'm exaggerating. Zach, one time, Zach made this statement to. She was in my top five under thirty, and everyone's me and uh, former guest Paul Yama, to which both of us were like. No, that's insane. What are you talking about? Under- she does not. Wow. Wow. She does not have the career um, for that. You, Nat, I'm not saying big movies, but the things I watch her and I love it. And Little Fish is a great movie. And I Even if you take Fish, it, I'm not, I'm not saying she needs blockbusters. You she didn't just watch have the- Little Fish. She's astounding in Little Fish. Okay. I'm about to watch Pixies. That's also starting her. I'm sure Little Fish is game changing. Game changing. game changing. Okay. To go to keep continued. So some other ones is like a sci-fi movie that has interesting cases. It's with Tiana Paris, who I actually also um, really love um, and hope the best for her career. Um, I mean, she's in the MCU now. But I hope the, best the big for her one outside uh, of MCU. There's a Gavin Hood movie. There is a Jeremy Saulnier movie. That's the like one I'm interested in. in. That really, that's... Yeah, yeah. I, I think mean, both of those because I think the Gavin Hood movie could be a real like movie star. Movie. Like he makes movie is, star vehicles. Gavin Hood is so iffy though. 
Yeah, he's not really he's not really movie star anymore though. The dude's making like freaking like, drone movies. You're either gonna get like really great or X Men Origins Wolverine um, first class origins. Oh wait, I'm definitely confusing him with someone else. O'Connor, you're gonna get Connor, <laughs> aren't you? I'm just confusing with Gavin O'Connor. Yeah, you're thinking his last movies are something called official. No, I was like, he's with the guy who directed Warrior in the way back. This is like a movie star director. It's Gavin O'Connor. Although I would watch Gavin O'Connor direct. Uh, John yes, Boyega. yeah, that John sounds great. Do a sports movie with Gavin O'Connor. I will watch it. Anything that sounds great. <laughs> so I hey, I, he, he has should, some. He can, play, he, he can do he can do an American accent. Have him play Walter Payton in a movie. Ooh, it's not a bad idea. Or just too. I mean, he had some pretty decent boxing in Red, White, and Blue. He did. Let's see that. No. Let's see the, the John Wick. Like, you know, here's, here's what you do. In Creed three, you introduce oh. another son of, of, of Apollo Creed, Ali Creed. This is this is a great. And then pitch. you have him him and Adonis fight. This is a great pitch. Because he's fought Europeans. He can't fight another European. He can, The only person... I don't want to fight anyone else's son unless it's another Creed son. So you're against the whole Mr. T son. No, please. No no Clubber Lang's. I don't want him to fight Clubber Lang's son. I don't want to see him fight Tommy Gunn's son. I don't want to well, see him fight Tommy wants, son. Nobody wants to see him fight I don't, Tommy I, I don't want to see Tommy... I don't want to see him fight Tommy Gunn the father. <laughs> it's, Tommy Gunn um, is dead. <laughs> The recipe is Tommy Gun. But the the Jeremy Sonnier movie, which has a horribly generic plot summary, but it's called Rebel Ridge. The cast of John Boyega, Don Johnson, and our hero, James Cromwell, the great man. And he should be Don Don Johnson, (laughs) Nash Bridges himself. Yeah. I'm excited. Who would have expected this Don Johnson comeback in the tw- in the, the late twenties? Look, look at that! Look at that mustache! Look at that facial hair! He's that was built for a comeback. You would not take Mr. T. You would not to take Mr. T's son, played by Winston. Okay, maybe, maybe that wasn't <laughs> Okay, now to bring it out. Fight. He, 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 he can fight. He, he can fight Clubber Lang Jr. And then in the fourth movie, he fights Boyega. Then he fights Boyega as Ali Creed. Yeah, either Boyega or Kaluuya as Ali Creed, or we make John Boy. We do like a twenty-year age gap, and we pretend that John Boyega is the son of Pretty Ricky Conlon. <laughs> Wait a minute, Creed Four Legacy. There's, there's no way that Boyega wants to do the Tony Easy Cut Superman, right? What? Ooh. Is there any chance, or is he trying to avoid big franchise things now? But maybe I, having Tony Easy Coats. Yeah, yeah but, but, but you know what? There. But you know what? The fact that that's the lead, like he is Superman. Yeah, I think and, he would do it, and I think he would trust like Tony. I'm he's so invested in Stephon James as Superman at this point. I don't know, but I, I guess he's like a perfect fit. I think Stephon James just has that look. He does. He does. He does look like he does look Superman ish. He has like that regal look. You look at him, and you're like that guy looks like he should be the best of them. Yeah, I, I would totally buy him as a superhero. Yeah. Um, we've completely gotten away from Red White Blue. Red White Blue. Red White Blue. It's awesome. I mean, it's I, it's one of those movies that like sometimes there's movies that are really great that there's not a lot to talk about, and this one is like it, it, there's not a lot to talk about because it's kind of all in your face and it's obvious. Yes, the police force has problems with race. They've had problems with race for years. They have problems with race now. Um, so the story of someone trying to fix that from the inside, you kind of know what the end result is going to be. But in some ways, this movie is just about really enjoying Boyega's performance and learning about somebody you probably hadn't known about because I didn't know about Leroy Logan before I saw them. But 
Also, also, an also intimate level. Go ahead. This movie is super successful because it, it, it's taking this big issue uh, of you know police treatment, but putting it through the lens of this very intimate story between the father and son. It, it's the kind of classic like uh, they they're not seeing um, each other. Um, you know, they both both have very different opinions on how to approach um, you know the incident that happens to father, but also to approach the injustice um, that the father just can't seem to understand and relate. You know, with John Boyega. Um, but in such an interesting way, because it's all in like, how do you create social justice and change? And that the fighters can understand that John Vega has an end goal and can't can't see that the, the, the path that leads up to that. Um, which honestly leads to, um, I think my favorite, no, because Lover's Rock has a lot of great scenes, but outside of Lover's Rock, my favorite scene in the movie is the final scene. Um, oh, which one is that? Standing at the table. And that seems like really where they came to kind of meet in the middle ground of him accepting his goal, but also John Vega kind of learning from his father what, what a long, hard path this is, that it, it, you can see the journey the father has been through, that he's been fighting this, you know, for longer than John Boyega, you know, could be aware of, and and, and it's just starting to lose a little hope, and John Boyega is, allowed, is able to put a little bit of flame there, but I think this is, like, in a way, the least hopeful movie of the bunch, because it's kind of like, this, this is so, such a, a huge hill climb through um that that it just kind of ends in that in like a really deep sad side is that the is that the scene with the really great quote where he talks about what his mom told him yeah. that if you get an if you if you don't get an education and i see you digging graves and i'm going to be sad because you didn't have a choice but if you get an education and then i see you digging graves i'll be happy because i know you had the choice and you chose to do something you cared about which is like a really powerful message and something that I think the movie really does a really good job kind of bringing together the two themes of the film, which is that his dad's just absolute hatred of the police after what they did to him and his son's like optimism and hope for a chance to try to fix it from the inside. Um, honestly, he's such a brave character. Like, can you imagine walking in front of the, the police board and being like, I'm joining the police because I want to fix it from the inside. And like, he's, so firm in his convictions and honest and open with them the entire time. Like it's really impressive that that like yeah. that is he a personal trait. Them. It's just is amazing. He tells them during his like recruitment that like I'm here to make change because I don't like what is happening. So he's always open and upfront and and you know honorable in how he serves the job and it's it, and it makes it to like if you have more people willing to stand up and fight that with them, maybe true change can be made. But it's just he's you know the small acts. Uh, not to like pick upon the title, but we, we need a lot of small axes to cut down the tree and hopefully the inspiration can you know, lead to something. Um, but also I, I think his like righteous anger um, in the number of spots comes out so naturally. I think those other performed things when he started to get really frustrated um, with the other cops when he knew you know, when they don't even go to back him up and he comes down because he, he goes in with his control. It almost in like a teacher way, sometimes you have controlled anger, like you let out your outburst because you feel like strategically that is the right move to make. And I feel like John Boyega and his performance in it, to what we know that character seemed like a very strategic outburst, like that he knew the right moments to make his point when he needs to be angry. And there's still so much control that I think that character has that makes him you know, so honorable. Yeah, he's so good at playing the different emotions, like when he's getting pressed in from different sides, when he's being jovial and fun, when he's being goofy and silly, when he's just livid at people, when he loses respect for people but still has to 
act respectful like his just ability to handle all those different emotions and feelings and thoughts is just it's it's incredible he's incredible in the film and be and be black superman john boyega <laughs> all right um i think we're gonna move on to the next one uh final shout out mark stanley from gren from game of thrones who is his running partner um who was from game of thrones gren the guy who holds the gate oh right okay yeah He's his running partner in this film. Uh, Mark yeah, Stanley. Yeah. Mark yeah. Stanley, that's right. Mark Stanley. Is this um, how it feels when I try to talk the music parts of movies and you're talking Game of Thrones things and you just feel so left out <laughs> of the conversation? Sometimes, sometimes. Have you not seen Game of Thrones, Zach? I watched one episode, pretty much the first episode soon after it came out and never watched another episode. Wow. You're missing, yeah. you're missing on like six and a half seasons of great television. I cannot. I'll, I'll, I'll catch up. I'm actually shocked that you watched the first episode and then we're like, no, I'm not going to watch anymore. That's kind yeah. of shocking me. Because I, I watched the first I, episode in the middle of like early season three when it's going out. And I was like, I have to watch this. And I basically binged it all in like four or five days because like I couldn't stop watching. Yeah, I so watched it on a mega bus sharing a laptop with my brother and probably sharing single headphones. So it wasn't like <laughs> the prime experience. <laughs> well, you know, you you have HBO Max now. Get on that, get on that bitch. Is, it, is this a problem that like... I'm sure all of us can remember exact viewing experiences from 10 years ago. And I can tell you, I saw the Game of Thrones episode on Megabus with my brother. I saw, first time I saw Robocop 14, 2014, I was on a plane. I almost opened the door. <laughs> he was like, I'm out. He's like, he's like, please take me. <laughs> Good luck, everybody. <laughs> um, let's move on to Mangrove. Um, which is really the one they should have released as a single film film because it would have I think this movie would have gotten like a ton of Oscars if it was in contention. Um Mangro's really sense really simple plot um covers the well, story. It's not. Of, it is it is it is, in, it is to explain. It's the story sure, of okay. the mangrove restaurant. This guy named Frank Richo starts the mangrove restaurant. The police are racist and don't like seeing a restaurant that supports a different culture and serves different food. They start raiding it and attacking it. Um the community pushes back. There is a riot. Um, the Mangrove Nine are arrested, and then the rest of the film features the trial of the Mangrove Nine, which is um, a really big trial in the UK, I guess. Which is interesting because it feels like this 2020 was a big year for movies about group trials, famous, famous, famous rights trials. Um, I actually want to start there, which is that I watched this the first time, not having seen Trial of the Chicago Seven. And then I rewatched it, having seen the Trial of the Chicago Seven. This movie looks even better when you come. Like it's a great movie originally, but when you compare it to the Trial of the Chicago Seven, it is just so good because this movie doesn't do any of the performative stuff that does. It doesn't try to do the fake ending where like suddenly they have like a a celebration ending that doesn't exist. Um, I, this movie is just, I think, way more impactful and way more interesting than that because in some ways this movie is just it feels more true to life. Like the the judge in this case doesn't feel like the worst person on earth. He's just kind of like not taking anyone's crap. Like he's just gonna reject a bunch of stuff. Like he's not necessarily on their side, but he's not Frank. I am the worst human being on the face of the planet. Like literally Angela. the devil incarnate, Langella from God damn you, Langella. <laughs> he's like literally trying to be the worst person. On earth. This movie's just, I love this movie. This is my personal favorite of the five. Um, I, I think that the extra time in this one is really, really valuable. 
like I cannot imagine trying to put this down to 60 minutes or 70 minutes or 80 minutes like some of the others. I do think giving it the full two hours is really, really important because it's the one that just really needs that time to marinate. I love the fact that they spend so much time setting up the manga. Like you could have done this movie where you just had the riot and the arrest right at the beginning and they jump straight into the trial. But I think there's so much value to letting people see what kind of community the mangrove builds and how important it is to everyone around it and then why they fight so hard when they feel threatened by it or the fact that they feel like we need this this is our place to go this is like matters and then you have all the scenes of like you know some little old lady walking in being like i've been saving this every sunday i'm going to give you my money because this place makes me feel like i have a home in this country like the value of community and the value of feeling like you belong and for so many people in this movie they belong because of the mangrove so when the police you know turn their sights on it you really get um you really get like you get to see what happens because people fight back when they feel like their culture and their way of life is threatened. Um, what what is very important about that aspect that I think often gets forgotten in you know a lot of social justice movies, I'd say especially social justice movies that can be directed by white people, is that is viewing the black experience purely as a struggle um, and forgetting the humanity and the life and the joy and seeing um, the moments of joy that they have that communities is. is very important in one making them real people and making it into real community, but also you know um, being able to attach our hearts to these characters and, and you know fall in love with them as full fleshed humans rather than purely feeling um, kind of an empty sympathy. No, yeah, and I, I do agree. I think and I agree with what Lucas what, what you said. The fact that the fact that they get the extra time to make the mangrove, like they take the time to like really establish the community aspect of this film, which is why when the mangrove is in jeopardy, that's why you that's why you feel so hard for it because like you understand like why this location is so important to 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 everybody because it, it's 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 an integral part of their lives at this point because like you know it's something that is familiar in a sense. And like, I think the trial scenes are really well done. I love the whole cross examinations. I think that they do. McQueen does a really good job building building these characters with like not much time. Like, well, you very quickly understand what the each of the mangroves. It's it's eight of them, right? Seven, yeah, seven. Nope, nine. There's nine of them. It's nine, nine. I, there's, there's Chicago seven. Chicago seven. Mangrove, mangrove nine. nine. <laughs> Chicago seven. Hateful eight. Mangrove nine. There we go. <laughs> uh, yeah, the, the the nine of them. I do get distinct personalities. Like you very quickly understand what Easton is about. Uh, but I also do I really enjoy the Lauren put by Jack Loudon, who I told I told Paul the other I watched it. I swear, like if this movie had this movie been made like five to ten years earlier, it's will be played by Simon Pegg. He, he felt very <laughs> Simon Pegg. He felt very Simon Lord, Peggish yeah. to me. <laughs> yeah. I, that that performance is almost my least favorite part. I think just there's the moment that that I in there that I find the closest to the trial of Chicago 7, a little like courtroom trophy, which is when he gives these kind of righteous faces, you know, when they all start chanting and looks at the judge like, oh, there's nothing I can do. He kind of like playing up the a little bit the righteousness of this character a little too much like look at this like big moment that I, I did I think within that character I, I hate that that look he gives the judge <laughs> fucking hate it but um especially just compared to all the other performances um, within that um you, you know brought up you know the patience of the pacing of the movie but I think also the patience of the camera in this movie is really astounding um the way it stops multiple he does this the whole series but um 
multiple scenes either you know in the kitchen after it gets raided watching you know the pan kind of rattle down so you can like live and breathe in that moment and feel that pain um also you know the the multiple close-ups that he gives a very kind of like jonathan demigask close-ups that gives characters when um frank Triclo is thrown into the um some, not a, like a, like a cell in the courtroom like uh, like a restraint cell um after he was you know mistreated by the guards and they got throw him in there pretty roughly and you kind of watch him um let out all his anger and, and, and bang the door and shout and you just get this close up on his face and that the the real pure emotion that he's going through in that moment um you know one of the most powerful acting moments you know within the series but the camera does a great job and really trusted the performance um there that and he just does that routinely see mcgreen does it routinely a lot of trust on on you know the shots a lot of trust on the actors to to own those shots yeah we got to talk about sean parks um he is the find of this entire series of films like sean it, you can look at his imdb and you're like oh, okay he's got a career he's been in some movies he's been in some tv shows it's a lot of british stuff i don't think anyone going to this thought sean parks was this good He's legitimately Oscar worthy in this film. He is that good. He is, it's an amazing performance. He has so much rage, so much life, so much indignation. He has this really strict, strict sense of justice and wanting to make sure he gets yeah. it. But he also acknowledges, but he's not an idiot. He doesn't, he also, he's like, he's intelligent this time. He wants his justice, but he also won't play into the performative nature of some of the other characters who are like, I'm just going to yell and act out. Like, he's very clearly like, I want justice and I'm going to make them give me justice using their system to give me justice, using their laws to give me justice. And I'm going to play by the rules and get my justice. And he's just, he's just such a towering performance. Like, even when he goes on the street and he yells at the cop cars, and he starts yelling about we serve spicy food. He's just got this amazing like strength and vitality. And he's just he is the heart of the mangrove and kind of the heart of the film. He's just he's a, he's amazing. He's he's phenomenal. He's phenomenal as fucking film, man. Uh, yeah, I do, I do agree. Like if this were releases separately, I do think that there'd be serious consideration for him best actor. As it should be, because he's he's phenomenal. And yeah, uh, I think obviously he's a, he's a fine. I do hope that he gets more mainstream work in a sense because like yeah i think people should take notice of him. most like a big i think people should take notice of him and how great he is in this show because like you're, you're right like he is the emotional crux of the movie like it starts and ends with his character so and he has the most weight to carry out of any catherine in this movie because his restaurant ends like you you, you feel it man, and you really want to see this guy get his justice yeah and to make some you know comparisons to alex riedel because uh, this is the I think both of these are about the political evolution of, of their characters. Um, I, would, I would say Frank Ticklo, not really at all radical, um, but still finding his political voice. Cause I think for, you know, half the movie, he's like, I just want to run my business. I, I want to, you know, have this restaurant sustained. I don't want to, you know, cause trouble or go, but he has to learn um, his fight, learn the reason for his fight and, 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 you know, find some hope and that he can overcome it. And I think, um, maybe a little more specificity through his, um, you know, his own personal and specific struggles compared to Alex Weedle is what makes that discovery uh, more satisfying than Alex Weedle's kind of discovery in his voice. Uh, 
I think maybe also just a wider array of personalities around him that he kind of gets brought into this community this uh, of, you know, just fighters with uh, Malachi Kirby's character, Letitia Wright, that he's really able to kind of learn from them, um, you know, the power of, of their voice and speaking up and, and fighting for what you deserve. Yeah. Let's talk about them, too. So Malachi Kirby plays Darkness Howell, and Letitia Wright plays Althea Jones. Um Thea Jones is a member of the Black Panther Party, um, and Darkus Howe is a barrister who is uh, somewhat of a uh, sort of a revolutionary, a speaker for uh, racial justice. And um, they're two of they're the two who choose to represent themselves in the stand, and in fact provide some of the best courtroom scenes in the film. Um, I've, I've I've never forgotten that whole like police bo- police box argument. Oh, it's so good. Like, three 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 of you. Looking through a box this big. Like, how did you, did you sit like this? Did you sit like this? Did you, who was in the middle? Like, it's just, it's such great questioning. Dude. And he's so, they're so good at being, they're, comp, they're loading everything they say with courtesy and platitudes and sir and full titles and everything. But they are also mocking them and showing what a ridiculous nothing case they have against these people that they're, you know, Oh, you're you're the doctor, and you're examining for bite marks three days later. You guys all stared through a two-inch slot. You know, oh, you're the only one who wrote down that they could hear chanting. Um, why didn't the other ones write it down? You joined the force 18 years ago, and you're like 20 ranks below somebody else who joined the same time as you. Why did that happen? Like, there's just like there's so much of a there's so much power, and they, even Loudon talks about this in the film. It's like when they start talking about self-representing. Um, the other, uh, what's his name? Uh, the older, another attorney is, well, I'm going to blank on, oh, Richard Cordry right. is the other barrister. And he's like, no, this is a terrible day. And Loudon actually is kind of a little bit of a maverick lawyer in this. And he's like, it's actually a really good idea because you can get these people. They're smart. They can do the practice. They can cross-examine. There'll be extra power letting them cross-examine. Um, and just like doing as much as possible to play within the system while also showing that the system is full of shit and you know <laughs> not acting the way it's supposed to and that if they want to protect they can they can sit up there and wear their uniforms and their robes and their wigs and pretend that this is some kind of just process but exposing that system for how ridiculous it is and we're like the idea of we're just like we're supposed to set somebody on the stand and be like oh he's a police officer so you should believe him it's just something that i think rings really true even now just the idea like of course, why wouldn't you question a police officer's judgment? Why are we supposed to believe that police officers are necessarily coming from a place of good faith? I mean, obviously, we've seen years and years of police officers not coming from places of good faith. Um, yeah, this movie is just filled with so many good performances. And that's some ways, like, he's the, the main role is so good. And then you have so many other smaller roles around it, just like filling it in. And that's why it works so well. Nothing. No, but I, no, I mean, I, <laughs> you say like, yeah. I like the ensemble for this is this is probably the most ensemble besides the next one. Probably the most ensemble heavy movie, but that was also not as acting heavy. Which, we'll, which we'll, again, we'll get to. But yeah, like no other film in this hinges on this many people having to be great. And I feel like McQueen he does really well with ensemble. Like we saw him do with Twelve Years Slave. We saw him do with Widows. And it's it's not it's no different. Mm-hmm. It might be the best like whole ensemble he's put together in his career. Yeah, and this like, even like the even the characters we don't necessarily like 
Alex Jennings as the judge is good. Um, Samuel West is the uh, opposing barrister is good. PC um, Pulley. Sam Sproul as PC Pulley is a really actually an interesting character because he's so – it's such an interesting commentary about how these really small people with little accomplishments feel so big by throwing their weight around. And if the system protects them and continually justifies away their bad actions, they can continue to act in this way. But he's sort of like – he's like that thing you can't show the light of day, and the minute you start exposing him to the world – he instantly yeah. loses all power and credibility. And the first minute she starts questioning him, like he's fine on the stand while everyone's going, how many awards do you have? Like, but the minute you you expose him for what he is, which is this bully, um, criminal abuser of the people around him, like racist, he just yeah. folds really fast. I think that Steve McQueen shows, you know, has enough political intelligence to to treat that character right that I think other directors not, I would say, in, including in Detroit, that I know Chance loves, but I think the way they treat, um, I'm forgetting the actor's name, but the kind of the main villain of the movie. Will um, yeah, Will Poulter's character, as in, instead of um, addressing um, this as a systematic issue, it kind of puts it on one, you know, bad actor, one bad thinker, and I, I think that could happen with people. Oh, one bad actor, damn, that's just, just drive-by on him. It, in a way, it seemed like it's just like a super villain in a case in Detroit, like just a super hateful person rather than being a systemic issue. But I think PC Pulley can come off this like he is just like an idiot and they make him come off as an idiot. So if, if they put so much focus on that being the primary issue behind the mangrove incident, I think it could come off a little um, short sighted um, because it'd be like this is just because they hired one other person. But I think he's so smart and putting enough attention to the you know systematic injustices happening within the courtroom and how they're treated, how the judge is handling certain situations. Because they do, I think, especially with the judge, they don't make him seem like an out and open, you know, acting out racist or like an old-fashioned following the court, the court policies to this old-fashioned of how a courtroom should go without realizing how those old-fashioned policies, um, you know, have a lot of unfair biases uh, towards it. I think giving just as much attention to that procedural issues as much as PC Pooley, I think helps it you know seem like the broader issue that it is rather than you know one horrible person causing you know this racism yeah i mean they also do a really good job setting that up like yeah Polly isn't he isn't he isn't working alone he's what he does only works because yeah. he's playing cards and somebody pulls a jack and they go out and they nick the first black guy and he tells you know he's in a car with two other constables and they they just go along with it their silence, their complicity to his actions is really important. And the fact that he's had complaints against him and his superiors haven't done anything about it. Like, it's really a statement on just the whole, the complicity of the system. He's the villain in sight of us during the film, but he's really just a project of everybody else, you know, ignoring their duties and yeah. ignoring what's right and just kind of letting the injustice continue. Yeah, they, they, he is an effect of the greater cause, which is the system itself. He's only able to exist rather than just being a, you know, a spontaneous virus that occurred. Yeah. Um, any more thoughts on Mangrove, or should we continue on? We continue on. All right. So we've Actually, reached well, the... I, I forgot one more. No, <laughs> one go, go ahead, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, I don't know what it was about this film. Like, I, just, I, I just started craving Jamaica food after this movie. So I, I literally, after I watched Mangrove... I had jerk chicken for the next four days after, after I saw it. <laughs> right before 
um, quarantine. Um, the great Jamaican restaurant in my neighborhood closed down, and I wonder if she was like seeing the future because she's mainly just the owner. Was like, was it was, was it was it around Miss Cleo? She, <laughs> no, but she's like, we're old. My children don't want to do it, so we're just gonna shut down. And then you know that was a quarantine hit next week, and all restaurants closed. So she knew what was happening. But I do miss that restaurant. Smart move. Um, let's continue on to the final Small X film, which is Zach's favorite, uh, Lovers Rock, which they um, do is, does not have a ton of a plot. If we're being honest, nope. It's it's Jamaican house party. That's it. There's moments. It is, there are moments in the film <laughs> that have stories. importance. There's moments to talk about, but it's the ostensibly it is there is a party for a girl's 17th birthday party, and people choose to go, and then basically human interact, interactions occur inside the party. Yeah, love He's it. um conflict, um people being a jackass, uh, sexual danger. Sexual, yeah, sexual there's a, a, there's a real predator character, which interestingly enough, I did not realize till the rewatch. I had kind of slipped past the fact that the party was for a 17-year-old girl, and he's a fucking grown-ass man. So which the makes first, that... Uh, the first creepy. time before he talked, I was convinced that was Chance the Rapper, but it wasn't <laughs> in a weird role. It'd be, it'd, be, it'd be strange if it was. I mean, I know yeah. I think he's Jamaican, but not like British Jamaicans. <laughs> Zach, tell us why you love Lover's Rock. Um, so I, I just to add to the plot a little bit is that he Super Queen has opened up that this is the one he kind of dedicated to his aunt, kind of based on her, his aunt's stories of you know sneaking out at night to go to these parties to then wake up in the morning for the church, which is what ostensibly who's the lead, what she goes through. You see her sneak out, and then when she gets back, she really gets breaking out of bed to go to church. So I think he, he is trying to bring you know the experience of that generation, his aunt's generations. Um, to life. And as I said before, when talking about mangrove, the importance of not just, you know, um, experiencing the struggles that this community goes through, has went through, he's also found it equally important that to see um, the the joy and uh, the uh, harmony between the community as well. Um, so we can see them as, a, you know, see this community having full lives. Um, and I, I, you know, deeply connect to the power of music. Also, that's that's a general theme that runs through a lot of my favorite movies. Um, and this movie, I think, better than any other movie, exhibited the emotional catharsis um, that you know community dancing and um, listening to music can create, um, and, and sharing that experience with others. Because, um, and that's why I think this is really, really should have been the end of the series in general. Because it is, it would provide that cathartic release to all the pain that we experienced in the first four movies to just kind of have a moment to uh, live outside that in this kind of safe zone in this party, um, and you know, experience um, and really get together um, with people around us. And there's so many different you know kinds. There's you know pure goofy joy with you know the kung fu site fighting scene um kind of earlier on we just kind of see them having fun with each other and joining up and then you know the best scene of the year miss silly games which which is you know lengthy it's like a 12 minute long scene um of, of having that kind of sing along where it's just really really like an emotional um release there um and then the more like 
raucous, um, almost like mosh pit um, scene later on that I, I can't tell you the name of that song, but the more just pure like anger kind of coming out um, and that's like the most masculine moment in any of these movies. Um, uh, but I, I, I just find that emotional understanding of music um, right on and very powerful. And that's why I love this movie. It does really, it is an important part of the series in that it really does kind of break the trend you see it sometimes with um, black stories where like a lot of black stories are focused on pain and suffering and like all the atrocities. And obviously that is a important part of the story, but it is not the only part of the story. And so I do appreciate that there is among all these stories of police brutality and trials and people going to prison and education systems working against people. But there is just a story about like the power of community and connection and the idea of like the one night where you just walk into a party and you see somebody you just find really attractive and suddenly you end up dancing with them all night. Just like that simple power of connection and that simple power of attraction. It's just, it, it's simple, but it's incredibly powerful at the same time. And I think yeah. watching the story is intoxicating, getting kind of drawn in with them. Um, like it doesn't have the, the moral, it doesn't have like the moral point or like, it's not trying to make a larger point like some of the other ones, but it is just like, you just get drawn in and you're just happy watching people go to a party, which especially in 2020 is a really impactful thing because it's something that like doesn't exist in the world right now. And, you know, in some ways that makes it even more powerful because it's so different from the life that we're all living. Yeah. I do think that I, I watched this one last out of all five of these, which I would recommend everyone do because it, it's, it's nice way to be like, get your ass kicked, get your ass kicked, get your ass kicked, get your ass kicked, have fun for a night. <laughs> And so, but yeah, I do think that C. McQueen does a great job highlighting struggle, black or otherwise. See hunger, shame to, to see what I'm talking about. But I think that his strength in this one is highlighting joy. I do think that he puts together like Glover's Rock is a, it's less of a movie, more of an experience. But unlike something like Dunkirk, where I don't connect with, I do connect with this because they do build, they do build some care, they do build. You know, some likability and some sense of, you know, it's a party you want to be at. And Lucas is shaking his head because I just, I just, I just, I just like, I just like a, the unnecessary shot at Dunkirk. There's nothing to do with Lover's Rock. <laughs> We're just like, let's take a shot at Dunkirk. Good <laughs> <laughs> can, can resist. Um, but yeah, I do think that the way that we put together this experience and just make you fully invested and in, there's a party that you want to be at. And I find I find that massively impressive. I don't find it as the way that it's lower on my list because I don't find it as interesting as more plot driven sections of small, of small acts. You know the ones that have more, you know, emotional or actual conflict going on. But as like a singular, as like a singular movie where it's just like, hey, we just want to come in, we want to have fun. It work, it works on that level, and I do really enjoy that aspect of it. In a way, this is like his spin on like Days and Confused or like a 70s Altman movie yeah. of these writers. Yeah. Um, and I, I do think it's remarkable, like these just great and very like acutely aware moments of different characters, like even characters, people sometimes that you haven't even seen until, you know, a moment that they might have a moment that you just still can attach a lot of feeling and emotion to it. Even so, the it's a, I believe it's a birthday party. Um, for like a 17-year-old, 16-year-old, and, and she's kind of the one that 
um, undergoes a little bit of sexual danger as well um, throughout the film. But then, you know, they gave her head, even she's probably like the ninth most focused on character within this movie, but gets her, you know, moment upstairs of when her friends like consoling and then there's um, maybe some sexual attraction as well. That, you know, you didn't experience that much time with either of them, but that moment you feel like you get everything that they're feeling and going through. And I think that's the magic with great director is that you can give a character one minute of screen time and you can, you can still fully relate to their experience and their emotions and, and the time that they're given. And I think that's throughout this whole movie um, as it navigates from character to character. Um, I think also it's just damn ass sexy. It's real sexy. Cause going with the silly game- It is a sexy, sexy shot movie. Yeah, because Vasily Games, which is honestly like a roller coaster of a scene, there's so much going on in the and and um throughout the song because it starts off and they're all dancing. Um, it's it's like a real sexy like there is like groins around groins, and there's a lot going on. And then there's the moments of you know danger within the middle of that scene of him taking you know walking out with um the kind of sexual predator character rocking out with a girl you just kind of know it's not going to be up to anything you're going to learn to not trust that guy um to where then it breaks from that gives enough attention to then go to the sing-along where you see you know there's the man in the deep voice kind of scene and he just you know brings so much kind of real pain being released in his sing-along and the girl that you sit or woman earlier that you see like preparing the meals and singing silly games at the beginning of the movie is back also gator you, you just know that this is like her dan loves hitting those high notes but at this point it's so much more felt like she's not just hitting these high notes but she's like feeling those notes at that moment so much and and the scene just remarkable in how many different vibes and and different experiences that you see all these characters going through at the exact same you know moment of the song um, and of course, you always get the like DJ guys vibing throughout it. They're my favorite. You have, it, you're right. It does have this kind of incredible quality of like every character is memorable and interesting, even if we see them once. Like the doorman is interesting. The DJ is interesting. But this, there's so many. But there's so many just right. Like they don't they don't have to be interesting for the story to work. You could just have the story focused on uh, Franklin and Martha and that would be the story that you could focus on. But in some ways, that's the kind of the brilliance of McQueen is he just pulls in all the other smaller characters. Even from the beginning scene, you start the beginning scene and there's like, there's some old guy in the house and you're like, why is he, like, there's just, but there's just, and then there's, the people are bringing in the equipment and they're walking past the kitchen of people cooking. Like, there's just, uh, it's so full of like, life and humanity. And it also even has the one, it has like even a couple moments where it does touch in like the, the you know, the more important um you know, more heavy stuff, you know, Martha tries to follow her friend out in the street and gets yelled at by some white boys and um, runs in, runs back towards the house and happens to run into a very, very scary looking black dude who rightfully so scares those white guys off, like, real fast. And that's like, but it's such a small moment, but it's also like, it's really smart of McQueen because it, it means that he can make a movie that's a lighthearted party movie while also not retracting completely from what his entire series has been about like he's not pretending that this party lives in some fantasy world where it's not it's not it's not in this fake world because there's still the scenes like white people are still a threat in that moment or franklin and martha go back to his work and then the like the white guy who looks younger than him is is very um condescending and treats him like a child um there's these moments that kind of remind you that it's still in the world the other four movies while still being this almost like fantasy like uh thing when they're inside dancing and listening to the music. Yeah. Um, going back to just small characters, 
um, as well that you feel like you know is the Dormer's girlfriend. I don't think has a line. And she says like one shot of like entering the party is in the background a little bit, but just, you know, between her look and her posture and her facial expressions, I feel like in some way, I almost say I get her, but like I get a vibe. And I feel like I understand her. I say for sure those two people are the smartest people at the party, and they know it. And um, I, I, I want to be their friends. <laughs> and she doesn't have a line. She's my favorite character. I don't, I don't, yeah, I don't think she has a line in the movie. Grunts around crying. If there's any point in this moment where an orange, where an orange is going to break down, it was right in that scene. It's, <laughs> it's, hot. Yeah. it's hot. It's sexy. They're sweating. They're they're yeah. feeling it. It's, like, it's, they it's really just the I was putting you in the middle of it. Yeah, it's the perfect like moment for them, right? Was yeah. right. It's like the perfect song, the perfect atmosphere, the perfect person up for that moment. And it was all just kind of right, literally, right before, literally right and metaphorically all... forming together. Right before they all start going get their ass to beat again the next day. Yeah. yeah. I mean, though it is, they do like a, they do a really smart thing, which is that they make the dance scenes and the musical scenes realistic and human rather than trying to make them something flashy. Like a lot of times movies make the mistake where they're like, oh, it's the, there's a song comes under the party, but they make it too much like a, like a 1960s um, golden age musical where it gets too flashy and too good. And like, yeah. there, no, it, it looks like, it looks like real people dancing. Like right. they're not doing some choreographed thing. They're not all doing the same thing. No. You yeah. can see people make mistakes. There's like a they're humanity to it, but that's fighting. what makes it work. Oh, it's and so good. Doing the Kung Fu fight in the full silliness, like, and they know it's silly other way. They're not doing great dancing. They're doing the cheesy ass. Yeah. It, it reminds me a lot of that, um, this, it, the scene from Black Klansman, where, like, he, where uh, Ron Stallworth meets Logan I would Harry say Harry. he dances real good in that movie, though, so I don't know what you're talking about. Well, but, 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 but I mean, like, a scene where it, just feels, it feels like a natural scene. It's like, like, yeah. like, hey, we're going to go to this club. We're going to play this song. We'll, just go, we'll go have what's going to happen. Just, let's just go. Yeah, that's actually a good comparison. Yeah, yeah but, but, but yeah, just a lot of trust because this is really is like thirty minutes of this movie. Half of it is watching people dance, at least if not more. Um, but he still makes it emotionally rewarding. He knows how to capture you know those moments in a way that does have some forward motion for these fifty characters that tells us something about them um, every single second. There's I, even though there's thirty or forty minutes of, dan- of dancing, I feel like there's no wasted moment. It really does. It's I'm not gonna say make house party like house party too, but it does if you want to see Steve McQueen's house party. Yeah. Um, quick shout out to Michael Ward and Amra Ja Saint Aubin, who are uh, Franklin Cooper and Martha Trenton, uh, our titular couple. Um, they're just just wonderful together. They're just just they they just really work together, and um, it's kind of like a real couple in some ways because they have the the moment where says somebody says something stupid and then has to apologize for it. Like, it's not like a perfect fairy tale. They don't click perfectly. They're not an instant connection, but there is something there and they can both feel it from the first minute they see each other. And that's why they kind of keep, um, they get drawn apart a couple times, but they keep coming back together. I think another pretty special moment of this movie is that at some point, I think it's her brother comes into the party and they, they, the cousin, okay, and they do enough to exhibit that you know he definitely has some troubles going on in his life. There's a lot of like, you know tension between him and, and his cousin, and it seems like the whole family, and it seems like something's up. But Steve McQueen never feels the need to just like tell us the issues or be explicit about what this guy is going through because that's not the important part. The important part is just the emotion. 
And, and that's where you get the most um, kind of exaggerated transition between how someone was feeling coming in to what that party was able to do to be that release and, and be that kind of change of mind that he needed at that moment to cool down from whatever was happening. And just the welcomeness um, of the DJs, they're like, you you need to be here with us. Like, you're one of us right now. We see what you're going through. Let's, like, come jam with us. Take the mic. I, I definitely, like, started, you know, moving a little bit to the music while you're watching this. I feel like it's yeah. almost impossible to, like, sit still. Like, it, it's infectious. You get those scenes happening, and you're like, it, it makes you want to dance along with the movie. Make, 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 makes you want to go find someone's grind to, to, to go on, to go on your grind. <laughs> yeah. It made me want to wrap my grind around other grinds. <laughs> <laughs> Can this be the new name of our podcast? We don't really have a good name. Can we just be grind around grind podcast? Grind, grind around grind. Yeah, I mean, the, the only problem is if we do that, then people are going to expect us to cover a different type of movie on a, on a show. I'm uh, not against this. We're going to do fuck month. <laughs> <laughs> you cover the cover, cover the Emmanuel series. Uh, that's way too softcore. We're going all the way. <laughs> oh, did did this say something to how I'm not fit for the show because I don't really know what that means? It's like softcore. Yeah, yeah okay. it, it, was, it, was, it was a softcore film series from the 2000s, I think. It's like Cinemax, Skinemax stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Zach and Lucas Pagas covered Deep Throat. <laughs> <laughs> we should. That'd be interesting. We, co- we, co- we, co- we cover the Pam Anderson sex tape. This will be the end of my career. <laughs> because we found Mr. Ford has a porn podcast. And a- <laughs> I don't know, man. I think you'd be really popular with the kids. I think that'd be very cool. <laughs> kids would be like, damn, Mr. Ford. I want to be in that dude's class. This is exactly where I thought this show would end. I was talking about her porn <laughs> podcast. <laughs> Um, do not have any final thoughts on Lover's Rock before we talk about the series as a whole? No, I'm good. Okay. I want to bring up one thing we haven't talked about, which is I think really important to the entire series, is I watch these movies with subtitles because the accents are very thick, very accurate, um, but I also think really important. Like, I actually love the fact that I needed subtitles to understand them at all times because I think that McQueen was like, I am going to do, you know, authentic West African accents, and I am not going to tone it down for an audience that may not be used to hearing that. I think that's actually a hugely important part of the entire series. You know, I, I started with subtitles, but like, absolutely, like, I, like, I got the 30 minutes in the mangrove. And because like my grandmother, she's she's not, she's an Islander, so her acting is very similar to this. And like, it was like 30 minutes, okay. I was like, wow, I, is it weird that I can understand every single word they're saying? <laughs> Like, I, I, yeah, get fl- like, I get flashbacks to hang with hang with my, my grandmother's house. That's good. I feel like that's exactly what McQueen would want, though. It's like you have the experience yeah. and the understanding of the language to understand it. As someone like me who doesn't, like I actually applaud him for making a movie that is that is unflinching in its use of the accent and is not like because I feel like there's a lot of times you watch movies and it's like okay, you gave your characters accents, but you also toned the accents down so that the average American viewer could watch this movie and understand every word. Like, I actually applaud them for the fact that like how accurate it is and how much it does require of you as a viewer to so, engage with the language. Unless you're Brad Pitt and Snatch, and then you're like, he has no fucks given. That's that's the one version of it where you just, yeah. Or Tom Hardy in every movie. Or Tom Hardy in anything. <laughs> 
or me on this podcast. <laughs> or Jeff Bridges or Jeff Bridges after yeah. 2015. Yeah, basically. Um, any other overarching thoughts of the whole series? Themes? Yeah, no, I think that I mean, like I said at the top of this, I think like he touches a lot of themes that are very timely and not and they have international play. They don't just work for if you grew up in that area or if you know about these stories, they work on they work on a personal level. And I think that's where we expect this. I think that this is the McQueen's. This is but it's a definition of kind of like you know, you lose now. You're more sports guys. It's like you got you get like a really like late round draft pick that you hear is good, but you know, it's a very like low risk, high reward type of thing. I feel like this is like a low risk, high reward type of project to where like, yeah, because this, this is probably was super cheap. He did it. He did it in a probably short amount of time. But it was so personal and it was so expansive that, like, if this worked, it was going to be seen as a high reward type of thing. I feel like you're seeing that because this is maybe the – it's not my favorite Steve McQueen movie, but it's my, maybe the achievement of his career. It is interesting in how – like, okay. It is interesting for a guy who basically did a movie that won Best Picture and dominated the Oscars. He is almost talked about as small axes Steve McQueen now. Because this is such like this feels so um, like personal to him. It's also, because he's like rarely, rarely makes movies. Like, please make more movies, yeah. Steve McQueen. I think he's yeah. more often described as the not the actor Steve McQueen. That might be the primary. <laughs> that's, that's also true. But yeah, I feel, I feel uh, like hey, this documentary is going to come out. He has movies coming out. It's true. This is true. Um, so I wanted to do two things before we uh, say goodbye to our wonderful audience. Which is first off, um, pick our one standout performance. Um, I'm going to let Chance start, and we're each going to pick a different one. So if somebody takes your favorite, uh, just pick a different one. Chance, what's the standout performance for you for the small acts? I mean, I already kind of said I was talking about the movie, but John Boyega in Red, White, and Blue. For everything that we said when we were talking about Red, White, and Blue. Absolutely. Good point. Pick. Zach, who's your standout performance? Um, I won't take Frank Chicklow. Or okay. what's your name? Sean Parks. So I can let you have him. Um, Thank you. I'm gonna just I'm gonna go fresh in my in my rewatch. I'm going with Charlene White, the mom in education, just to give someone attention that hasn't got as much attention in other media outlets for a small X. I think she's amazing. Absolutely. And yes, as Zach said, I will pick Sean Parks and Girl. Um I think if they had run this as a movie, he would I mean, I'm gonna be honest, I'm counting this uh in my best of the year picks for movies and for performances. John Parks is my is my best actor. Mine's Boyega. So mine's Boyega too. Yeah. Yeah. I think Boyega will be in there. Um which is incidentally uh we'll be talking about when you can see those results in a little bit. Um and the last thing I want to do, which is personal rankings of the top five. Chance, why don't you go five to one for us? Rank the five um yeah. So I would go uh, edu- uh sorry, Alex Wheel, Education, uh Lovers Rock, Mangrove, Red, White, and Blue. There, there. Zach, what about you? Alex Riedel, Education, Red, White, and Blue, Mangrove, Lovers Rock. All right. And then I would agree. I feel like Education and Alex Riedel are kind of in the bottom. Like, I would put that in the bottom tier. Uh, Alex Riedel, Education, uh, Red, White, and Blue, Lovers Rock, and then Mangrove is my number one. On rewatch, Mangrove jumped, Lovers Rock. Um, I feel like there's more there to rewatch. Mm-hmm. And Lovers Rock is really an enjoyable experience, but there's less to dig into on exactly. multiple viewings, and that's why I, I think that Lover Mangoes are jumped ahead for me. You have horrible taste. There's so much to dig into in every second, and it <laughs> is going to be a hard one to beat as my favorite movie of the decade. I'm sure. Wow, wow! Zach's already locking his best of the decade. 
See, see you in twenty. See you in twenty thirty. Until the be- beautiful day in the neighborhood sequel comes out, Lovers Rock will be late. Or like Wendy two or something. Yeah. Or Muppets <laughs> Peter Pan. What if they do Peter Pan with the Muppets? Can we make it an episode without me mentioning Peter Pan or Curious Case of Benjamin Button? I only mentioned Wendy because I was watching that earlier, and um, the, cur- I know the you Curious look- Case of Wendy the Frog. Like can we can we do something on camera right now so we have chance as witness? I guess Coho could be our witness later. Maybe we should save it. We can do it. What? Go ahead. What do you want to? I want to make an Oscars bet on our predictions that we were going to make. Okay. Um, um, I guess this has already happened by the time this episode comes out, so it doesn't matter. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we will do this. There will be. An I episode. don't understand a chronology of anything. <laughs> well, it's because they're off camera and then do a Skyrim on camera with Coho. This is the problem. Uh, when oh, you know, episodes out of order, and Zach does not Everyone know knows calling my shot now, so you hear after the fact, and Noah's right. I'm going to be destroyed. Lucas had Oscar predictions, and there will be some curious case of Benjamin Button watching. Dude, last year <laughs> I literally missed two of them. So did I. Chance know this because chance would be one. We basically were like 97% accurate or something. We had like exactly. I, I need. I was this close to swerving on Parasite. Best picture. I can go copy Gold Derby odds too, Lucas. Then why don't? At it's not about. Me. It's not about copying Gold Derby odds. It's you looking do. at Gold Derby odds and knowing when you pick the favorite versus when you don't pick the favorite. That's why you win. If you pick just the favorite, you won't win. Yeah. Hey, I'm doing exactly. Oscar. Um, but that Oscar wins. Oh, we'll be. Do- we might be doing both. Um, okay. Fun fact, I have not told you about that. Um, yes, <laughs> we have lots of Oscar content with... Um, That's already happened. Yes, we have Oscar content, both directions. Co-Oscars founder, Caleb Coho, will be appearing a lot. Um, we will try to get him to do have four different hairstyles um, so we can get four different color hairs for his four episodes because um, that will be fun. Um, any final thoughts on Smallox, gentlemen? It's uh, an excellent piece of cinematic achievement that everyone should go watch. Hey, absolutely and, and also it makes it seem like it's you know a, a hard watch and it, i mean it is emotionally but it's not as far as cinematically i still think it's very accessible the being the, still, being split, the being split up is helps it tremendously yeah it still functions very well as you know pure entertainment as well as um you know important social justice content yeah um Actually, before we go, what do you guys think about watch order for Small X? Because obviously Steve McQueen put it in a specific order. Right. Um, I don't necessarily love the order he put it in personally. Like, I don't think that necessarily is the best viewing experience. Like, I think I think the way I, I would recommend just like just skipping over Lover's Rock, saving it to the end. It's about all. That's about the only change I've made. I think, I think start with Mangrove and with Lover's Rock. That's fair. I would actually, in some ways, argue that. It's always so tough because sometimes I feel like if you're if you're a hundred percent invested in watching all five of them and you're not going to drop out, I would argue watch Alex Weedle first. Right, fair. Because you then can see like the progression in terms of how they get better. But if you are worried about not wanting to get invested in all of them, I would not watch Alex Weedle first. I would watch maybe Red, White, and Blue first because it's shorter or... than Mangrove. Or Mangrove, but I think the only reason I might do Red, One Blue first is because it's shorter, it has a bigger name, I think people will be more likely, it might be more accessible to watch the movie that has the Star Wars guy in it that's 80 or minutes long. We have that's discussed right. as a possibility is chronological, which I don't know if it's clear, but I would say that's probably what, Education, Mangrove, um, Alex Riedel, Red, White, and Blue, Lovers Rock, as far as going from the I, 60s to the 80s. I think that's right. 
Yeah, I think that's right as well. I think there's also like I watched it different orders the first time versus the second time. I do think there's interesting ways to play around this if you choose to rewatch and just like putting it around. See how movies affect you differently if you watch them in different orders. Like, um, I think I just think it's, it's just interesting to experience that voice. Um, with that being said, thank you to Chance for coming on the podcast again, talking about um, some wonderful films. We will definitely have him back. Um, he's one of our uh, our gold platinum level guests. Yeah, <laughs> you're the most. Actually, you're not the most because Coho would be ahead of you at this point with the Oscars. He is the most. He is. He is the most regular episodes, yeah. non-specials. Chance is the leader right now. He has the belt. Chance is also a man who knows something about having belts. I do know something about having belts. <laughs> and this is the first time I didn't say something that made you mad about music. So we made that is true. That's very true. Zach, yeah. like Zach has a you. wonderful habit. To everyone in the audience, you can go back and watch episodes where somebody starts talking about how passionate they are about a specific type of music, and then Zach proceeds to take a giant shit on them right after he they just you know announced their devotion to this type of music. It's always a fun time. And then I end up playing like, you know, moderator the next 10 minutes while they, you know, have to work out the differences. Our biggest fight to this day has nothing to do with quality of music. It has to do with the (laughs) definition of a front man, our most hidden moment on this podcast. We got into a fight on the Eurovision episode about who is the front man of Fire Saga. For 20 minutes. We're not going to make Chance weigh in because we do not need to involve him in that fight. I also, I also um, have not seen Eurovision yet. so have not seen Eurovision yet. All right. Well, he can help anyway. Um, yeah. Um, thank you to Chance. Next week, uh, well, we have a bonus episode coming up. We're going to do top 10 of 2020. Um, talk about some performances. Basically, do our best of 2020. That is where you will find out um, who and Zach and I have for our best actors, best pictures. Well, not really best pictures. We're doing top tens. And then like, you know, some other awards as well. Uh, not, we don't have to play by the Oscars rules. We don't have to play by the ones that we think we're going to get nominated. Just going to pick our favorites and that'll be a fun time. We will also be um, reading some other top tens from uh, guests that we will uh, acquire from them before we do that episode. Um, and then if you want to mail us top tens and I know this already happened. But, oh no, it hasn't happened. Bail us your top tens into our emails. Whatever. Do not it is. do not do that. Do Wait, not. why can't they email us top tens? We don't have to read it. Yeah, send us top tens of any subject to our yeah, email, Lucas and Zach Podcast at gmail.com. We will really oh, read them at some point. All I'm trying to do is push our email account. Also, you can tweet us at Lucas and Zach Podcast. Thread it hashtag. At Lucas, and Zach, at Lucas and Zach. At Lucas and Zach Podcast. <laughs> oh, yeah, thank you. On Twitter. Um, yes, please send us random top tens. The more random, the better. Yeah. Um, we will also have an announcement on the bonus episode, Top Tens of 2020, on our April topic. We will announce that then, and then you will uh, get to know what the first movie of that topic is and what the topic is overall. With that being said, thank you, Chance. Thank you, Zach. We are done here. We will see you next week. Zach Song? Oh, shit. <laughs> Everybody, all of, I, I'm, I'm not able to hit Janet. And I'm sick. I'm not even going to try Janet Kay's first. So we're, we're, doing a, we're doing a reprise. Surprise. Let's do the reprise. Come to this fighting. Everybody together. Oh, oh, oh. This is everybody, guys. Oh, oh. 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 Oh, oh
We'll see you next week.